The following sermon is by Boyd Johnson, pastor of Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. More information about Treasuring Christ Church can be found at tccathens.org. There is a terrifying warning given in the prophecies of both the Old and New Testaments, and it's this, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. God warns us in the pages of Scripture that there is a t- coming a time when the whole earth will fall under justice. There have been times in the past when God has judged the earth, but this coming time of judgment will be unlike anything that's come before. It will be time marked by worldwide calamity with disaster upon disaster. A time when no unrepentant sinner will be able to escape God's anger. A time when all of heaven and earth will be in turmoil and disorder. God will pour out His wrath against unbelievers on the earth as punishment for their unrighteousness. The prophets in the Old Testament called this future day of judgment the day of the Lord and warned of its coming. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 13, Verses 6 and 9, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. The prophet Joel wrote in Joel chapter 2, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Zephaniah wrote in chapter 1, The day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The prophet Amos said in chapter 5, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord! Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Terrifying warnings. And Jesus described this time of judgment as a time of great tribulation, according to Matthew 24-21. A time of great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. This time of tribulation, Jesus said, will be marked by wars, famines, earthquakes, false prophets, false Christs, abominations, hatred, betrayal, deception, lawlessness, sorrow, and pain. Now, the most detailed description of these tribulation judgments is found in the book of Revelation. Chapters 6-18 through reveal unimaginable horrors that will fall upon sinners who refuse to repent of their sins and who justly deserve the wrath of God. Chapter 19 reveals that the day of the Lord will culminate in the return of Christ, who will then make an end of all of His enemies before establishing His kingdom on earth. 
Now, we don't know when this day of the Lord will come. But we do know it will come suddenly and without warning. And since we know it's coming, it raises a very important question. Will we have to endure these judgments as believers? Will believers of this church age go through this coming time of tribulation that Jesus spoke about, that the Old Testament prophets spoke about, and that John foresaw in the book of Revelation? Will we have to go through the tribulation or the day of the Lord? Now when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, the church in that city was essentially asking the same question. They were concerned about the coming of the day of the Lord. When Paul was in Thessalonica, he taught them that this time of judgment would indeed come. But sometime after Paul left the city, the believers in Thessalonica became concerned about the timing of the day of the Lord. It's not entirely clear why the church was so anxious about the timing of the day of the Lord, but likely it was for two reasons. One was that the church continued to suffer severe persecution and they began to wonder whether their affliction was part of the judgment of God. Were they living in the day of the Lord? Is that how they should interpret their circumstances? The other was that according to Paul's second letter, false teachers began to stir up the church and tell them that the day of the Lord had indeed come. Consequently, the church was anxious. And so in response, Paul wrote to the church and comforted them with the truths found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1-11. through Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Well, this is the third week that we've studied this passage, and so far we've studied verses 1-8. through As we finish this passage today, I think it would be helpful to remind you of what we've learned so far. In this passage, Paul comforted the Thessalonian church by teaching them the truth about God's future judgment, the day of the Lord. He began in verses 1-3 through by addressing their concern about the timing the timing of the day of the Lord. And he said that the times and seasons of the future events are not ours to know. 
but that the day of the Lord will come suddenly and unexpectedly upon the world of unbelievers, and when it does, no unrepentant sinner will be able to escape God's judgment. Then Paul gave two reasons why believers need not fear the day of the Lord. Two reasons why believers need not fear the day of the Lord. The first reason is found in verses 4-8. through We need not fear the day of the Lord because of our identity. Our identity. Because of who we are, we can be assured that we will not experience God's coming judgment the day of the Lord. Believers, he says in verse 5, are all children of light, children of the day, not of the night or of the darkness. As believers in Christ, our identity is that we are children of light, not of darkness. We are children of day, not of night. That means that God has granted us saving faith in Christ and we have been delivered from the realm of spiritual darkness. We're no longer darkened in our understanding about the will of God. And we no longer walk in the darkness that we once walked. We've been rescued from spiritual darkness because of Christ. But in contrast, unbelievers are those of the darkness and the night. That is, they belong to the realm of sin and live under the judgment of God already. The day of the Lord is for people such as these. The day of the Lord is for people of the night, people of darkness. It is a time of judgment for those who are walking in darkness. It is for people who are far from God and who are characterized by sin and not holiness, who are characterized by evil deeds and not righteousness. And that's why believers need not fear the day of the Lord. Because of our position in Christ, because of our identity in Christ, because of who we are in Christ, the day of the Lord is not for us. We will be delivered from this coming judgment. So the first reason we need not fear the day of the Lord is because of our identity. Now that leaves the second reason in verses 9-11 through that we haven't yet studied. In these verses, we find that we need not fear the day of the Lord because of our destiny. We need not fear the day of the Lord because of our destiny. So let's examine this second reason more closely. And as we do, we'll notice that Paul begins with a truth to embrace followed by a duty to perform. A truth to embrace followed by a duty to perform. That's often how Paul exhorts believers in his letters by first giving them a truth to embrace and then a duty to perform. So first of all, we must take comfort in our destiny. We must take comfort in our destiny. The truth we must embrace is our destiny. And as I said, we need not fear the day of the Lord because of our destiny. Now what is the destiny of every believer according to this passage. Well, Paul answers that in two ways in verse 9. On the one hand, he says, God has not destined us for wrath. On the other hand, he says, God has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So negatively, we haven't been destined for wrath. Positively, we've been destined for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The key word here is destined, which is the Greek word tithemi. What does that word mean? It occurs over a hundred times in the New Testament with a wide range of meanings. In its most basic sense, it simply means to put into place. To put into place. But the word has special significance in reference to God. When God is the one who puts into place, it refers to God's sovereign decisions and plans. His sovereign decisions and plans. Let me give you some examples of how this is used in relation to God. For example, on John 15.16, Jesus told His disciples, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed Tithemi, appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. In other words, Jesus sovereignly determined who would be His disciples and the fruit that they would bear. That's what He's put into place. Who would be His disciples and the fruit that they would bear. In Acts chapter 1, verse 7, when Jesus' disciples asked Him when Israel's kingdom would be restored, He said, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed Tithemi. Fixed by His own authority. That is, God the Father sovereignly determines the timing of future events according to His own plans. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul exhorted the Ephesian elders, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made, Tithemi, has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. These shepherds of the church weren't appointed by man. The Holy Spirit made them leaders of the church by His sovereign determination. That's why I often say we don't make elders here. We recognize them. We have a part in helping helping to equip them and raise them up, but it's the Holy Spirit who makes elders, who makes overseers, who makes the leaders of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18, Paul reminded everyone in the church, God arranged, Tithemi, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. In other words, God has determined the role of every believer in the church. He has appointed you in this church, in this particular church, to serve in your particular ways as He has gifted you. That's His sovereign determination. We don't influence that. It's His determination. We bear the fruit that He has appointed for us. God is sovereign in all His choices, in all His plans. And that includes the destiny of His people. As His chosen people, verse 9 says, God has not destined us for wrath. We have not been appointed for His wrath. Wrath here refers to God's anger over sin and unrighteousness. Now, His wrath is not a sinful anger that is wild and out of control. It is an anger that is a righteous hatred of sin. In His wrath, He judges and punishes mankind for rebellion and disobedience. Now, in one sense, God will pour out His wrath on unrepentant sinners who have not trusted in Christ by punishing them in hell for eternity. 
That is God's eternal wrath. But in this context, what does Paul mean by wrath? The whole context of the passage is the day of the Lord. So here, he's not referring to eternal wrath, but the wrath of God on the day of the Lord. We call that temporal wrath in contrast to eternal wrath. It is the wrath of verse 3, which will result in sudden judgment upon the world of unbelievers from which they will not escape. So Paul here is clearly indicating that the believers are not appointed for the day of the Lord. We are not destined for that wrath. This isn't to say we won't experience any affliction in our lives. Paul acknowledged in chapter 2, verse 14, that the Thessalonian believers did in fact suffer, he says, persecution at the hands of their countrymen. He even said in chapter 3, verse 3, let no one be moved by these afflictions, these persecutions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. As followers of Christ, we aren't destined for wrath, but we are destined for affliction. Suffering is part of our destiny. Suffering is our lot in life. Why? Because of who we follow. If they persecuted our Master, they'll persecute us. As followers of Christ, we should expect suffering, Peter said in 1 Peter 4. I'm reminded again of what John Calvin wrote, whomever the Lord has adopted and deemed worthy of His fellowship ought to prepare themselves for a hard, toilsome, and unquiet life crammed with very many and various kinds of evil. It is the Heavenly Father's will thus to exercise them so as to put His own children to a definite test. Beginning with Christ, His firstborn, He follows this plan with all His children. If the Son of Man suffered, and so will we. We're destined for affliction. But we're not destined for wrath. That's comforting. Because it means that when we suffer affliction, we must not interpret that as the wrath of God if we are found in Christ. If you have trusted in Christ savingly, then your affliction is not the wrath of God. It's not the judgment of God. The Thessalonian church suffered a severe affliction due to persecution, but Paul wanted them to realize that it wasn't God's judgment upon them. Now, from time to time, God does discipline us. But there's a world of difference between discipline and punishment. Discipline helps us grow in Christ. Discipline grows us in sanctification. But punishment is punishment for our sin. And Christ has already paid that penalty on the cross. Whoever told this church in Thessalonica that their persecution and affliction was proof that the day of the Lord had come was lying. As believers, we're not destined for that day. What are we destined for? Well, again, according to verse 9, we're destined to obtain salvation. Again, according to verse 9, we are destined to obtain salvation. 
What is salvation? The basic meaning of the word is to be rescued. To be rescued. Rescued from what? What are we saved from? We are rescued or saved from the wrath of God. That's why we need saving. The wrath of God is coming. We need salvation from that. Now again, in one sense, when we are saved by God, we're rescued from His eternal wrath. As believers, we won't go to hell for sins and be punished for eternity. Christ has paid that penalty. But, in this context, the wrath of God refers not to eternal wrath, but the wrath of the day of the Lord. That's what this paragraph deals with. It doesn't deal with eternal wrath. It deals with the wrath of the day of the Lord, the temporal wrath that's coming upon the earth. So here, salvation refers not to eternal salvation, but to salvation from the day of the Lord. In other words, Paul is clearly indicating that believers in this age will be delivered from the day of the Lord before it comes. Paul said the same thing with different words back in chapter 1. He commended this church for turning, according to verse 9, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's what He'll do. We wait for His Son from heaven. That's chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, where Jesus is pictured coming from heaven to rapture His church. And we raise from the dead Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's chapter 5. Delivering us from the day of the Lord. So Jesus delivers us, truly, both from eternal wrath and the wrath of this coming time of judgment. In fact, Jesus promised this very thing to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. I'll show you this. Very important passage. Very important promise that parallels the same truth that we're learning here. The church in Philadelphia in ancient Asia was a faithful church and endured much suffering. And here, Jesus commends this church. And He said, "...because you have kept My word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I will keep you from that hour of trial." Again, in context, what is the hour of trial, the time of trial coming on the world that Jesus promised to keep them from? Well, if you kept reading in this book, you'd find out the answer. You'd find out the answer in chapters 6 through 18 and 19. The trial is the tribulation judgments that are detailed in the following chapters of Revelation. Those judgments that mark the beginning of the day of the Lord. This promise to this church in Philadelphia is I'll keep you from that trial. You won't go through that trial, that time of tribulation that's coming upon the world to judge the people of the earth. And that phrase, the people on the earth, always refers to the people of unbelievers in the book of Revelation. So this promise to the church in Philadelphia was a great promise. 
But it didn't apply only to this ancient church. We know that because Jesus concluded His message to them with these words. Verse 12, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now notice that churches is plural. In other words, this promise is given to all churches that endure in faith like the one in Philadelphia. If you have an ear to hear, apply this if it applies to you. If you're among the believers like those in Philadelphia who endured with faith, kept on believing in Jesus despite hard circumstances, then this promise is also for you. So Jesus promised what Paul explains here in our passage. Jesus will rescue us from the wrath of God coming upon the world. Now, why are we spared the wrath of God? What's the basis of our salvation? Well, we're not saved because of our worthiness. Rather, we are saved only, notice the words in verse 9, back in chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, we are saved only through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Three words to describe our Savior. He is Lord, which points to His divinity and sovereignty. He is Jesus, which points to His humanity. He is Christ, which points to His mission. Why He came. Our salvation in all its fullness is solely on the basis of the merit of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not on our merit. Not on our good works. Not on our pedigree. Not on our family history. Only on the merit of Jesus. What did He do for us so that we could obtain this salvation? Well, Paul continues in verse 10. Does He died for us. He died for us. That's how we have salvation. There's a world of theology in those two words. For us. He died on our behalf. He died in our place. He died in our stead. He died as our substitute. If you trust in Christ, His death paid the penalty for your sin. We read elsewhere, Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 5.3, Christ died for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. So our salvation from the wrath of God is secured and assured by Christ's past work on the cross. And the reason He died, according to verse 10, is so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. We saw back in chapter 4 that awake and asleep figuratively describe those living and dead when Christ returns. No matter what our state, He died so that we could live with Him. To live with Christ is the great end of our salvation. 
As we learned in chapter 4, we have the hope of immediately passing into the presence of Christ when we die. And we have the hope of our bodies being resurrected after we die. And we have the hope of an eternal home with God. That's the great hope of our salvation. See God face to face and live with Him forever. Accordingly, we've been saved to be with God, not to be under His judgment. That's our destiny. To be with God, not under His judgment. So we need not fear the day of the Lord because of our destiny. The embrace of the truth leads us then to the duty we must perform. And that's what Paul talks about in verse 11. So secondly, we must take care of our duty. We must take comfort in our destiny and we must take care of our duty. Paul says in verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. That word therefore draws to a conclusion Paul's teachings on the end times in this letter. Since chapter 4, verse 13, he's been talking about future events. And with this therefore, he draws this section of the letter to a close. His purpose in writing these things has not been merely theological, but practical. He knew that this church was anxious about their present affliction and fearful about the future, and so he shepherded their hearts by providing the teaching they needed to hear in order to have hope. But the church also had a role to play. We have a role in helping one another until Christ returns for us. We have two related duties. For one, we must encourage one another. We must encourage one another. We've noted in previous studies that the word encourage can be translated in various ways. Comfort or exhort, depending on the context. Here, encourage is probably the best translation since the church needed courage in the face of all the trials they faced. We need to encourage one another. We live in times of affliction and it's easy to become discouraged by our trials and to believe that our suffering is God's judgment against us. But if we are in Christ, we are no longer condemned. Though God disciplines us as His children, He doesn't punish us. And so we ought to encourage one another to embrace the truth of who we are and what God has destined for us. Likewise, we must also, Paul says, build one another up. Build one another up is a term that literally refers to the construction of a building. It became one of Paul's favorite words to describe spiritual edification. Each of us is like a holy temple that is under construction. We are built up through the help and strengthening of others. We need each other's help in order to thrive spiritually. When all of us have a concern for one another, we're stronger and we're better able to endure trials as a church. But we need to be built up first. Healthy churches do both of these duties well. Encouraging one another and building up one another are essential for spiritual health. Paul knew that the Thessalonian church was such a church, so he added at the end of verse 11, just as you are doing. He wrote not to rebuke them, but to spur them to make continued progress in the faith. Though they were healthy, they could excel still more in the practices that they were already engaged in. Likewise, though we often encourage one another, we often build one another up, we could do better. 
we could do better. We could excel still more. We could seek out additional ways to strengthen the church through our service of one another. We need to come on the lookout for serving. Who can I serve today? We call that in our household aisle ministry. You walk the aisles and you look for someone to encourage. You look for someone to build up. You come here as a mission, especially you members. You members must come here on a mission. You've got a job here. Your job is to build up others, to encourage one another. This is a whole body work every Sunday morning that we all must be engaged in. If this church is going to continue to be healthy and thriving, a place where people can have their hearts encouraged, many people come here week after week and they are discouraged because of the things that have happened the week before. They come here downcast. They come here without hope. We need to be looking for those people. We need to have conversations with people. Come early, stay late. That's always been the theme for our members. Come early, stay late. Why? To strengthen the church. This is the one time in the week we all get together. Just once. Can you believe that? Believe we only get together once? That's crazy! In this world, we must be together. But we get one shot. All be together on a Sunday morning. We dare not neglect this meeting together. We dare not miss the opportunities that we have. We must take advantage of encouraging one another and building up one another in this body. How are we going to make it? How are you going to make it in this world without this church? How are you going to make it when pain comes to you? When affliction comes upon you? When you're persecuted? How are you going to make it as a Lone Ranger Christian? You can't. Those who don't love the body of Christ are not part of the body of Christ. Got to be together because evil days are ahead. Tough times are ahead for every one of us. And so we need one another. And so, PCC, encourage one another. Build up one another. Listen, just as you are doing. This isn't a rebuke. This is an encouragement for us to excel still more. I'm so encouraged by this church week after week because I hear the body getting together. I hear of you not neglecting to meet with one another outside of this time period. Calling one another. Meeting each other's needs. Praying for one another. But church, let's excel still more. Let's thrive even more. And we all need this as the day of the Lord draws nearer. So we've seen two reasons why we believers need not fear the day of the Lord. We now understand that because of our identity, and our destiny, the day of the Lord is not for us. The day of the Lord is not for us. That explains why we won't experience God's wrath when His judgment comes upon the earth. But it doesn't explain how we'll be rescued from this wrath. Here in chapter 5, we've learned the reasons why we won't experience this coming judgment. 
But what we haven't learned in chapter 5 is how it is that God will rescue us. If His wrath will be worldwide, how will God keep us from falling under His judgment when the day of the Lord begins? It turns out that Paul's already answered that question in this letter. He has answered that question. But he answered it first in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 16 to 18. He answers it with the explanation of the rapture. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The rapture, when Jesus returns for His church, explains how Jesus will keep us from the hour of trial that is coming upon the world. Jesus will return for His church and remove us from the earth before He begins to pour out His wrath. He will first rapture the church and bring us to heaven where we'll be safe. Then He will judge the earth. So first comes the rapture, then comes the judgment. That's how we're rescued from the day of the Lord. And so be encouraged by the promise of salvation. Salvation in all its fullness. Salvation from that day of the Lord. Salvation from eternal wrath. Be encouraged by what Paul has taught us here. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the encouragement that we get from Your Word and from worship of You together and from praying to You corporately and from singing to You. And we pray that for as many days as we have, that You would help us to make a priority our time with one another. Make a priority fellowship with one another. Everyone in this room who's a believer, has a role to play, and you have sovereignly determined that role to play. You've sovereignly determined the the fruit that we would bear. You've sovereignly determined who it is who's come to saving faith. All these are part of your sovereign plans and sovereign hand at work. So Father, find us faithful to do what you've called us to do, to encourage one another and build one another up as the days grow evil. Thank You, Father, for this reminder that You have rescued us, saved us from Your wrath. A wrath that truly we deserve to receive. We've been saved not because we're worthy or have more merit than anyone else. We deserve the wrath from Your hand as much as any other sinner in this world and this history has ever had. We all deserve it. Because we're all sinners. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ because You have called us to saving faith, we're no longer under Your wrath. But we have this great promise, this great expectation that we'll live with You forever. That's a wonderful rescue. A salvation far greater than we could ever have asked for, but one that You've given to us. So thank You, Father, and thank You that Jesus did all this on our behalf. Because He died, we have eternal life. And so we exalt You this morning together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not alter the content in any way without permission. Treasuring Christ Church exists to spread a passion for the fame of Christ's name in Athens and around the world. We invite you to visit Treasuring Christ Church online at tccathens.org. There you'll find other resources available to you and information about our upcoming gatherings.